Hello, I'm Dr. Thomas Rawson, and you're listening to Jamilcast, the podcast showcasing the frontier of epidemiological research here at Imperial College London's Jamil Institute. On today's episode, we hear from Dr. Anne Corrie, a senior lecturer and mathematical modeler within the Institute who, alongside her team, has been developing free and easy-to-use software tools to help quickly and effectively calculate how transmissive diseases are, developed just in time for a global pandemic. I remember when we first had the idea of this software, Simon Cauchemes, one of my mentors, said, oh, I have this vision that if there is, you know, a big epidemic or a pandemic, everybody will be using this. And I'm so glad that people were indeed able to use that and that it could help monitor the the pandemic in real time. Find out more about how these tools work right here on Jamilcast. For the last 15 years, Anne's research has placed her right at the front line of real-time pandemic response research. I was raised in France. This is where I went to school. And after school, I went to what we call engineering schools, which are really universities where you learn about all sciences, mathematics, physics, and applications of that to many different fields. After that, I became interested in the application of mathematics to medicine in general, and did a PhD on infectious disease epidemiology, where I worked on what we at the time called SARS, because there was only one, but now we call it SARS-CoV-1, because obviously the more famous SARS-CoV-2 has since hit us. So yes, I worked on SARS and influenza, trying to understand transmission of those pathogens between different groups, for example, healthcare workers and the rest of the population. Real-time epidemic modeling is really about trying to understand the virus and how it may affect a population. I like to think about two main properties of the virus. Um, One is how transmissible is the virus and the other one is how severe it is. So if it's transmissible, very transmissible, it means that it will affect many people. Now, if it's transmissible and not severe, you know, many people might catch it, but they won't be very severely ill. Where it really does become an issue is if it is both transmissible and severe. So really what I'm trying to do is when there is a new pathogen or a pathogen that existed in the past that is re-emerging or emerging somewhere where it hasn't circulated for a while, it's really to try and understand where that pathogen lies in that severity and transmissibility scale. I finished my PhD in 2010 when there was an influenza pandemic and I could see all the papers from researchers at Imperial College who were really, you know, leaders of infectious disease modeling in real time. They were really, you know, helping the world understand this new virus as it was emerging. And I thought this is what I want to do. So I moved to Imperial College in 2010 and I've been here 12 years now. Those 12 years have been an immensely busy time. At Imperial College, Anne has worked directly as part of the ongoing response to many of the last decade's epidemics and outbreaks you may have heard of in the news. HIV, MERS, multiple Ebola outbreaks, and more recently monkeypox, and of course, COVID-19. Once a case is detected, it's often going to be reported locally, nationally, and then often internationally too. So WHO, the World Health Organization, will often be involved. 
either they will call on us when they start seeing that there are many cases of a new or re-emerging pathogen and they're worried and they want to understand, you know, again, how transmissible, how severe this pathogen is, what are the options to control it. Or occasionally we will also, you know, we collectively keep track of ongoing epidemics in the world. And sometimes, you know, we'll feel like, oh, maybe this one is being problematic. And uh, we might offer to help in country to try and yeah make sense of the data, to try and understand what's going on and what could be done to control the epidemic. And I think there is this view that modeling is about predicting what's going to happen, you know, next week, how many cases we're going to see. And it is part of the job sometimes, but really the way we do generate those projections or predictions is by trying to understand and quantify the properties of the virus, its transmissibility, its severity. So this is just a small part of the, of the job. Transmissibility in particular is something that we often uh, capture or quantify through something we call the R-value or the reproduction number. Those who found themselves following the daily data updates on COVID-19 cases may well be familiar with this R-number, this reproduction number, as being a key variable of interest frequently reported in the news. Described in simplest terms, the R-number explains the average number of new infections that one infected individual will cause. So, an R number of two would indicate that, on average, each infected person will themselves infect two new people. Therefore, when responding to a disease outbreak, you want to make sure that R number is as low as possible. The most important thing to try and do is get the reproduction number below a value of one. If R is exactly one, then each infected person would cause, on average, one new case, suggesting that the daily number of infections won't be going up or down. If R is below one, then the number of cases each day will be reducing over time. Exactly what we want. In early 2020, countries around the world had enacted strict social distancing measures in an attempt to force the reproduction number in their respective populations below one. For those first few weeks of lockdown, Public health officials would wait with fingers crossed for epidemiologists like Anne to estimate lockdown's impact on the reproduction number, hoping these extreme measures would be enough to curb the value of R below that all-important value of 1. On April 30th, 2020, Sir Patrick Vallance, the UK government's chief scientific advisor, appeared on a live broadcast to deliver the news. So, the R is below one. We think it's between 0.6 and 0.9 across the um, nation. Maybe a little lower in some places, a little higher in others, but it's below one across the country. The number of infections will be coming down. We need to make sure and to stick with what we're doing in order to get the R down further, to continue to keep it down and to make sure that the number of people in hospital comes down right the way across the nation. But as you might have worked out, the reproduction number isn't just one fixed value. As an outbreak plays out, the number will be constantly shifting up and down. New variants of a disease may be more transmissible, well, that'll push the R number up. And as more people get infected with the disease, often then obtaining antibodies to fight against being infected again, well, that will push the R number down. 
changing public health interventions, school holidays, warmer or colder weather, big stadium events, international travel from other countries, vaccine treatments, mask wearing, hand washing. You get the idea. With so many factors causing this key parameter of understanding to move up and down over time, being able to calculate it accurately, quickly and frequently is like trying to consistently hit a moving target repeatedly over many months. I teach um, a lot of students here about the reproduction number, and now I feel like the entire world knows about it. Nevertheless, it does uh, have some nuances behind it, so it might be worth reiterating what we mean by R number or reproduction number. The basic reproduction number is also called R0 or R0. If you're a foreigner like me, you might not know what the naught means. It's zero for initial. It's really the reproduction number at the start of the epidemic. So this is really a property of the virus. And in contrast, we also talk about what we call RT or the time varying reproduction number, also called sometimes the effective reproduction number. And what this is, is really a living up to date picture of what this R number is. One of the key issues is that to estimate uh, or quantify what the reproduction number today is, you need to have information to data up to today. And obviously data can be delayed. So I'm not going to know immediately today how many people uh, had symptoms today, for example, because it might take time for them to be reported either to a GP or to a hospital if they become a severe case. So there are a lot of time lags, which mean that having an up-to-date picture today is really difficult. And then the estimation of the reproduction number is a statistical process that takes time as well to bring in together different pieces of information and then run um, a sort of analysis that may take time to run on a computer. And so I would say maybe 20 years ago, what would happen is that by the time the correct data had landed on the statistician's desk, and by the time they had finished their analysis, they would be able to tell you what the reproduction number is two weeks ago. It's almost as if you were looking at the weather forecast and what you could see on your phone was the weather forecast for two weeks ago. So that's not really helpful, is it? Calculating the reproduction number accurately and quickly is exactly where EpiSTEM comes in. EpiSTEM, shorthand for Epidemic Estimation, is one of Anne's most impactful research items to date. It's a free-to-download, easy-to-use software package that allows anyone to quickly stick in available data on disease cases and get out an estimation of the reproduction number. It's fast, it's simple, and most importantly, it's reproducible. As you've heard, when a parameter is as dynamic and ever-shifting as the reproduction number is, it's important when scientists communicate these values that they can show exactly which point in time they're referring to and based on what informing data. Having a platform that everyone can use and understand means that the context of these calculations isn't lost. Best of all, it also outputs information on the uncertainty surrounding the estimation of the reproduction number. Having more data means you can usually be more confident in your assessment. In scientific research, communicating your uncertainty is just as important as communicating your estimates. So to explain how EpiSTEM works, maybe it's useful to think of an analogy example. 
Think of a human population, perhaps the population of a country, and in this population, each person may or may not have children, and as some of them have children, the population size will change. Now imagine you are monitoring the population size over time, for example, by conducting a census every year, and you observe that the population doubles every 30 years. This tells you how fast the population is growing, but it doesn't tell you how many children an average person in the population has. Now, imagine you have extra information that tells you that on average people have children at age 30. Well, if the population doubles every 30 years, this means that each individual has two children or each couple has four children. And this is the parallel to a reproduction number of two. Note that this number would be different if we knew that people had their children at a younger or older age on average. If, say, a rabbit population doubled every 30 years, then 30 years would capture a lot of generations of rabbits, and this would imply a lower reproduction number than two. Epistem is doing a very similar analysis. So as epidemiologists, instead of looking at a population changing over time and census data to measure it, we look at disease cases over time and epidemic surveillance data that measures that. We also consider not the average age at which people have children, but the average time it takes for an infected individual to infect more people. This is called the generation time and is really important for accurately calculating the reproduction number. If you get it wrong, your reproduction number estimate is going to be wrong as well. And just how critical is being able to calculate the R number in real time? Can you give an example of how this mathematical work then translates to real-world action taken? So before COVID-19, I had spent quite a few years working on Ebola. And the first Ebola epidemic I had been involved in was the unfortunately famous West African Ebola epidemic. This happened in 2013 to 2016 and was the largest Ebola epidemic ever. It happened mostly with most cases in Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia, which were countries that had never experienced Ebola before. And so it was late to be recognized. And uh, this led to thousands, tens of thousands of cases. And we used EPSTEM during that epidemic to track the reproduction number over time and to see, you know, what uh, the real-time transmission was like to monitor where we were doing better, where we were doing less good. It kind of guides the level of intervention that you might consider. And then typically some interventions will happen, some behaviors will change as well in the population, and hopefully that will bring the reproduction number down. But by measuring the reproduction number, you know, in real time, it enables you to see whether your interventions so far have been sufficient to bring the epidemic under control, and that is to bring the reproduction number below one or not. As an epidemic goes, it becomes really hard and very expensive, really, to conduct contact tracing. So when you move from this sort of smaller epidemic with very good contact tracing context to a larger epidemic with much less good contact tracing, then that's where you move from being able to see the reproduction number directly in the data to wanting a more sophisticated way of uh, estimating it. 
being able to quantify the reproduction number in real time is really critical to having an effective response uh, to an epidemic. EpiSTEM has been a significant advance for real-time disease response. Since first launching in 2013, the software has been downloaded well over 100,000 times and used to conduct hundreds of published research studies across the world. To help continue to improve and better target the software, Anne and her team conducted a survey to understand how EpiSTEM was being used and who by. Unsurprisingly, it had seen a huge amount of use worldwide on tracking COVID-19, but was also being effectively used to monitor many different kinds of disease. For example, diseases spread by mosquitoes like malaria or dengue, but also sexually transmitted diseases like HIV. If you think of Anne's previous example, these are types of diseases where the chain of infections can be far longer, a longer gap in between someone becoming infected to then infecting someone else which is a distinction that EpiSTEM is really good at capturing. We also asked people who were using it, who are you? And we found that this was being used by academic researchers, but also policy makers, people working in NGOs, medics working in hospitals. And they were using it, so in the context of COVID anyway, to really give an up-to-date picture of, you know, what is transmissibility now in my country or for people working in hospitals, for example, what does this mean for how many cases I might expect to see at the hospital in the next week? And we found that WHO, the World Health Organization, now also uses EpiSTEM. In fact, they've created a web interface um, to facilitate its use. They recommend using it and they have it as part of their training. And many national health agencies used EpiSTEM to produce what people may have seen on their national public health or health agency website, which was a frequently updated estimate of the reproduction number. So, for example, for France, Spain, Belgium, Austria, Norway, Brazil, several states in the US, this was using EpiSTEM. So, I think I estimated about 400 million people live in a country that has used EpiSTEM to track COVID in real time on their national website. Accessibility is a key aspect of EpiSTEM. It can be downloaded in various forms to work alongside whatever existing software or functionality a user has. Do your hospitals submit their data in Excel sheets? Well, there's a version of EpiSTEM for that. Do you have a sophisticated data pathway set up already? Well, there's a version for that. Do you need to quickly plug some numbers into a user interface? Yes, there's a version for that. Tools like EpiSTEM ensure that high-quality, real-time disease estimates aren't just limited to which countries can produce the most mathematicians, while also trying to reduce the opportunity for error that comes when someone needs to perform time-sensitive, complicated calculations every single day. We've put a lot of effort into these tools so that they're fast. So this helps with timeliness. I talked about the issue of, you know, reading on your phone the weather forecast from two weeks ago. Well, having tools that automatically estimate the reproduction number mean that this is how we manage to have our weather forecast or our epidemic forecast really uh, for today rather than two weeks ago. So that's really important. It's really important as well because before those tools, 
we were relying really on modeling experts to run these analyses. And, you know, there aren't that many of us. Uh, we're unfortunately very often all concentrated in a handful of countries and many countries don't have that modeling capacity. So they wouldn't even be able to run those um, analyses. And we all make mistakes. So I'd much rather have had years to develop that software tool and rely on this robust tested tool to estimate the reproduction number every day than rely on myself doing this over and over again with the risk that I might make a mistake. So it just makes the analysis faster, more timely, but also more robust, more reproducible and more reliable. With the day-to-day -day demands of COVID-19 research starting to ease, and is now planning on applying EpiSTEM to new kinds of research questions. This time, instead of looking forwards, looking backwards at over a hundred years' worth of data on previous epidemics, trying to unpick the patterns that reveal vulnerabilities in how and where outbreaks can strike. One question that I'm very interested in is exploring locations that are consistently at higher risk of having a high transmissibility or a high reproduction number. So going back to my PhD, we worked on influenza and we compared the reproduction number for two influenza pandemics that happened about 30 years apart. So this was the 1889 pandemic and the 1918 pandemic. We got data from uh, multiple US cities about the two pandemics and we used something like EpiSTEM to quantify the reproduction number for each city for those two different pandemics. And we found that the cities that had a high reproduction number for one also tended to have a high reproduction number for the other. And I think this is really intriguing and really important for future epidemic control if we can better understand whether there are places in the world, places in a country, populations where the risk of high transmission is consistently higher, then it helps us, you know, target them for better surveillance, but also target them for quicker intervention. The other thing I'm very interested in exploring about EpiSTEM is because it is so simple, many researchers have tried to add layers of complexity to it to make it a bit more accurate. And, you know, researcher A adds one element, researcher B adds another element. The issue is as you add more complexity, it becomes slower. So in my mind, that is less helpful for real-time monitoring. So I'm really keen to find out which of those complexities are really important to capture and maybe for different diseases, what are the specific complexities that we need to consider and which ones can we forget about and just go back to the very simple EpiSTEM, which most people are still using as is. That simplicity is something Anne is proud to have EpiSTEM known for. Just one uh, clarification that, it, and your response read to it as simple currently. Is simple still the word you're happy to, happy to run with? I think it is simple. I think it's very clever, yeah. but it's simple. <laughs> you probably have guessed by now that I'm a big fan of software tools that are, you know, enabling rapid, robust, reliable, and fast assessment of uh, where we are at in an epidemic. And Many groups have created more software tools, which I think will be really, really helpful for the next epidemic. So from that perspective, I'm quite confident that we're better and better equipped. Where I would caution, you know, blind optimism is that those tools are only as good as the data you put into them. 
and as the people who interpret their outputs. We need to continue collecting very detailed data, very detailed information about what the biases in those data might be. And we need to keep training many people to understand the output of these tools to be great epidemiologists, really. From a, an academic perspective, I guess it was quite ironic that my most successful ever time in my career was when I was on maternity leave. So I was sat on my sofa with my little baby in my arms and everybody just started using Epiestim. It was both really scary that this pandemic was happening, but I was also so proud that this tool was being used. And from an epidemiologist perspective, this was also the time where I had my second baby. So this was my own reproduction number of one, which I'm very happy that I have achieved a nice threshold of one. <laughs> you can read more about EpiSTEM and download it for yourself at the link in the show notes. There are multiple example cases and workbooks provided with the download to help you get to grips with it if it might prove useful for your own research. In the time since we recorded this episode, Anne was awarded the prestigious Adams Prize for her work. The same award given to Stephen Hawking in 1966. This has been Jamil Kass, and I've been Tom Rawson. <laughs>